Let's pray. Gracious Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. Open our hearts, minds, and imaginations to the truth of your word. For we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. A month and a half ago or so, when Pastor Rick invited me to preach this morning, he sent me the scriptures for this Sunday. They are solemn, difficult passages about slavery and oppression, about death and repentance. They're very appropriate for the season of Lent, but as my wife pointed out, none of them are jokey. None suggest the sort of witty one-liners that keep people awake during the sermon. You knew that when you asked, yes. And as I read them for the first time, two things immediately came to mind. The first was that all three scriptures are strikingly incompatible with the prevailing mindset of our 20th, 21st century world. Our society is becoming increasingly secular, meaning that more and more of our neighbors and friends tend to believe that things like human meaning and purpose and morality can be determined without any reference to the divine. That any God who is revealed to be judge will tend to produce an intolerant, judgmental people. All three of our texts speak directly into these cultural beliefs that are shaping our world. The other thing that went through my mind as I read these texts when he sent them was a prayer, a prayer that I always pray when I set out to prepare a sermon. Namely, I prayed that God would allow me to live into these texts, that I might fully embrace them as God's word and indwell them so that my mind, heart, and imagination might be shaped by them. Then, a couple of weeks later, two and a half weeks ago, came Ash Wednesday. A few minutes before midnight on that day, on which we Christians celebrate that we are dust and will return to dust, my mother died, passing from this life into the next. Mom was 95. She was increasingly feeble, sliding ever deeper into de dementia and memory loss. And she was also ready to go. So there's a real sense in which her death came as something of a relief. Still, being by her bedside for several days as she died made the idea behind Ash Wednesday into a far starker reality than I would wish on anyone. As I was in her room in the memory care center waiting for the end, hoping the morphine would ease her agitation and discomfort and allow her to sleep, these texts kept intruding on my consciousness. The Exodus text is about being rescued from the suffering that comes from being oppressed and unappreciated as a human being. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt, of being treated not as a person of dignity and importance, but as insignificant. Look at verse 7. I have surely seen, the Lord tells Moses, the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. One of my most vivid memories of mom was her telling me, more than once, how she never felt appreciated, either as a child or as an adult. My father was an abusive, controlling man, and mom often asked us, 
why he always treated her as if she didn't matter. We told her often, my wife and I, as we cared for her in these last years, we told her often that she was important to us, that she was loved. And we tried to demonstrate it in the way we cared for her. And in her last few days, we kept repeating it too, that we weren't always certain that she could hear us. I guess this is just a long way of saying that God answered my prayer. He granted me a way to indwell these scriptures. But I must say, it's been a very severe mercy. Still, my personal story in this merely illustrates a deeper reality that we all must face. And it reveals a set of questions that are answered by Christian faith in a way that is starkly different from the way many in our society tend to answer them. So how do we make sense of such things? What is it that these texts teach us about life, about repentance, and about death? And how can we talk about such things in a way that our non-Christian neighbors might be able to understand and appreciate? Our gospel reading divides itself into three sections, and so I'll divide my message into those three. First of all, Jesus corrects a mistaken idea. Then he explains how things are. And then thirdly, he tells a story to make things plain. He corrects a mistaken idea, explains how things are, and tells a story. Let's look at each three first. Jesus corrects a mistaken idea. We know from the context of the scripture in the previous chapter in Luke that a large crowd had gathered to listen to Jesus and to ask him questions. And just like today, current events, bad news, and politics apparently came up. And someone asked him about a horrific event that had occurred in which some Jews from Galilee had been slaughtered in the temple. In AD 25, Pontius Pilate had been appointed the prefect or Roman administrator of the Jewish province of Judea by the Roman emperor Tiberius. Now, we really don't have any information about the event that Jesus was asked about. So much of this is just speculation from history. But historians tell us that around this time, Pilate decided that the water supply in Jerusalem needed to be upgraded. Since this would primarily benefit the Jews, Pilate decreed that it would be paid by money from the temple treasury. Now, the Jews objected to this since they saw that money as dedicated to God. A mob gathered, and Pilate sent soldiers into the fray to restore order. Now, Pilate apparently, from what we can tell from history, had ordered his soldiers to carry clubs, not swords, to mix in with the crowd and then to subdue and disperse them. But apparently things quickly got out of hand. People died in the violence that followed, and the temple, which was sacred to the Jews ended up being contaminated not just by the invasion of Gentile soldiers, but with actually violence and bloodshed. And then Jesus brings up another event that was equally tragic, about 18 people who died when a tower fell on them. Now, we don't know for certain, but it's possible that these two incidents were related. It's possible that the Jews who died in the tower collapse were working on Pilate's water project. This may have been the reason Jesus brought it up while discussing the killings in the temple. In the first case, the people who died were clearly innocent in the eyes of the Jews, while the ones who died in the accident would have been viewed as compromised. 
signing on as construction workers for Pilate meant that they accepted as pay money that had been stolen from God, you see. In any case, regardless of the historical uh, facts or details, and even if these incidents were related to some other thing that went on, because the scriptures don't tell us, in two horrific instances, people had needlessly died. Some had been killed by Roman soldiers, and others died when a tower suddenly collapsed and crushed them. And in each case, what Jesus says next reveals what the discussion was really about. Luke 13, look at verse 2. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, Jesus says, I tell you. And verse 4. Do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. You see, Jesus here is correcting a mistaken idea, a popular myth that tended to be accepted as true. The idea is this. When someone died unexpectedly, it's probably because they deserved it. It was because they were worse sinners, more immoral and wicked than everyone else. And to this idea, Jesus says, no, it isn't true. It's actually a very, very old idea. If we read the oldest book in the Bible, the book of Job, we find the idea there. Job suffered a whole series of horrible losses, and then some of his closest friends came to be with him in the aftermath of his troubles. One was named Eliphaz. He acknowledged that in the past, Job had spoken words of comfort to others who had been suffering great loss. But now that suffering has come to him, he seems to be unable to comprehend why. Eliphaz has no trouble with this. It's not difficult, he says. Listen to what Eliphaz says in Job 4. Remember, he says to Job, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. In other words, God protects the innocent and judges the wicked. The people who were slaughtered in the temple, in other words, we don't know them, but we know this much about them. They were worse sinners than us because we're still alive. They're dead. Those crushed in Siloam under the, under the tower, same thing. You don't even have to know them. They're bad people. We're less bad. We live. They're dead. This false idea was also reinforced by the story of Israel's history. Our Exodus text insists that God is not aloof from human history, but engaged so it was a short but mistaken step from that truth to the myth that people who died unexpectedly were judged by God. And in our First Corinthians text, St. Paul mentions two incidents from the Old Testament, from the story of Israel, in which God did judge his people for their sins. So you see, once again, it's just a very short but mistaken step to the myth that anyone who died unexpectedly must be worse sinners than those who lived. And Jesus said, insisted, no, that's a mistaken idea, so don't believe it and don't speak that way. Just because God has revealed in his word that some tragedy in the past was an expression of his judgment against evil doesn't mean we can extrapolate that conclusion to all tragedies, do you see? To do so is to assume knowledge that we do not have that is hidden in the heart and mind of God alone.
So after correcting a mistaken idea, Jesus, this is the second thing, he explains how things are. And if anything, what he says next is more shocking and difficult than what he just dealt with. Listen to what he says, beginning with Luke 13, verse 2. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus insists that we have no special insight into how God is at work judging evil in our broken world, and so we shouldn't talk and act as if we did. But he also insists that we should know this. We, too, are sinners. We, too, have fallen short. We're finite creatures who fall short not only of God's perfect standards, but even of our own limited, imperfect standards. And so he says to us, we need to repent to turn from evil and brokenness that resides in our hearts because apart from grace, death awaits. I don't like it when Jesus gets this personal. And we can know this for certain. God is actively at work redeeming his broken world. All three of our texts emphasize this. Jesus insists that when sinners repent, they actually transcend death and find forgiveness in life. But wait a minute, someone will say, okay, okay, let's say that I offend and hurt someone. Let's say that I sin against you. I do something to hurt you. I agree that this was wrong and that I should make it right and seek your forgiveness. But why would I need to seek God's forgiveness for that thing I did against her or him? I can understand this objection. But as a Christian, I would say the misunderstanding is actually about what God is like. Think of it this way. Let's stop talking about the God of Scripture for a moment, and let's talk about Thor, okay? And I pick him just because he's really popular today, okay? Perhaps you've read some of the great Norse myths. I hope you have. If you haven't, you should. Or seen some of the movies that star Thor as a superhero. That's less important than reading the myths, but still, could be fun. Thor is the son of Odin, the father of gods, who sent Thor from Asgard to Earth. He is certainly more than a man, eager to fight against the evil that seeks to destroy humanity. And he claims to be a god and proves his deity with superhuman powers, a great hammer of judgment, and a stubborn inability to die. Okay. Now, under what circumstances would someone need to seek Thor's forgiveness? That's pretty easy. When someone walks up to Thor and does something that offends him. And if you know anything about Thor's hammer, it's a really dumb thing to do. If you lived, you could ask Thor's forgiveness, but there's no guarantee that he would grant it. It would depend on how he's feeling and on what else is going on. But here's the rub. You see, Jesus is not like Thor, and the God of Christian belief revealed in Scripture is not like Odin. 
Though sometimes we sort of talk as if they're similar. You see, in a moment we're going to recite the Nicene Creed together. And the opening words are this, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. In other words, created reality, what has been made by God, is in two parts, the visible and the invisible, the physical and the spiritual. We know what the physical realm is like. It's all of this, and it includes us as persons, right? And in the invisible spiritual realm, we also know that there are beings. Some are called angels, they're good. Some are called demons, they're bad. And what we sort of say is, well, you know, if you go into the spiritual realm and look around and find the very biggest being of all, that's God. Not so. Not so at all. You see, the God of Christian belief transcends all of created reality. He's not limited to some created spiritual realm. He is beyond, behind, under, and over all that he has made. We speak of him as being to make the point that he actually exists, but in a far deeper sense, he is beyond all being, for all being is called into existence and sustained by him. God is not the biggest being in the spiritual realm like Thor and Odin might be. He is the uncreated one, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and he transcends it all. He is not fickle, fickle, but faithful. And his insistence on justice and goodness flows out of a recognition that everything that falls short of his own character results in death because he is the source of all life. This means that in the Christian view of things, the really real is God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The cosmos is not a neutral thing in which we must somehow discover right and wrong by what helps us to adapt and survive. Instead, we live in a world that reflects the very character of its maker, his glory, and his goodness and grace. You see, when I sin against you, I must make things right and apologize to you. But when I sin against you, I also sin against ultimate reality against the God who calls us into existence and sustains our being with the word of his power and in whom I live and move and have my being. When I sin against you, I do so in relationship, not just with you, but in relationship with my creator, who is the source of life and my being and apart from whom there is only death. That is how things are from a Christian perspective. Do you see how it changes everything? And finally, after correcting the false idea and saying how things are, Jesus tells a story to make things plain. It's a very simple story, one that can be told to children. Some of the stories Jesus told are difficult to understand, and we have theologians still arguing 2,000 years later exactly what he meant. This isn't one of those stories. A farmer has a fig tree growing in the middle of his vineyard. And fig trees take several years before they begin to produce fruit. And after waiting three years, this farmer has run out of patience. Cut it down, he says to his worker. But the worker suggests an alternative. Let me prune and care for it instead, he tells the farmer for one more year. I'll fertilize, aerate the soil around it. 
Let's give it just one more year. That doesn't produce fruit next year, we'll cut it down. Now, given the conversation that Jesus is having, the story isn't that hard to discern. How people live, how we live, makes a difference. What we choose matters. Whether we bear fruit or are barren matters. If we aren't in a right relationship with God in whom we live and move and have our being, we'll be embracing death even if we're unaware of it. We all fall short. The primary issue is not achieving moral perfection. That's impossible. But acknowledging our need and accepting the grace and forgiveness of God, that is what Jesus means by repentance. It's claimed today that the only God worth considering is one that's tolerant. The very notion of God's judgment seems harsh and unsophisticated. The problem with this view, of course, is that it is satisfying only if we're talking about minor offenses. If you pilfer an apple at the farmer's market or hide a few hundred dollars from the IRS, probably none of the rest of us will get too excited about it. But there are things I do not want overlooked in this broken world and for which human justice is entirely inadequate. Tens of thousands of women have been gang raped in the Congo where marauding lawless warlords have turned violence against women into a weapon of war. I don't know about you, but I don't want a tolerant God in the face of that. I want the God of scripture who will not tolerate such evil and who promises that someday his kingdom will be established, that he will be both king and judge, and then heaven will work work backwards in time until justice fills the earth as the waters fill the sea. That's the God I want to worship and serve. These texts from Holy Scripture reveal that God is not aloof but involved in the story of history, in the story of our lives. The ones on whom the tower fell were sinners, but so am I. And they were not worse sinners than me. This passage is highly useful, John Calvin says in his normal 17th century prose. Were it for no other reason than that this disease is almost natural to us to be too rigorous and severe in the judging of others and too much disposed to flatter our own faults. I agree. Believing our God as judge of heaven and earth should not make us judgmental, but quite the opposite. It should make us as Christians the most humble people of all. In fact, the Bible forbids us to judge our neighbor because we too are sinners. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul writes this, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister if they're guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. 
Do you hear that? It's another one of those clear texts. I'm not to be judgmental in my neighborhood because I too am a sinner. And God has said, I'll take care of them. Mind your own business. To the extent Christians today are critical and judgmental, to that extent we are failing to live into our Lord's calling to a lifestyle of repentance. In a way that was simple and authentic, Mum believed in that repentance. She believed that in Christ she was granted forgiveness in life. She was untouched by the modern cynicism about such things, and that's just as well. I often told her that just as she had borne the weight of disappointment in a fallen world when I was a child, it was my turn now to return the favor. I loved her, but like all of us, she was not perfect. She too fell short of God's and her own standards. Two years ago, before her dementia got too very bad, she told me she realized she had enabled my father in his abuse in our family. And with tears, she repented of her choice. I should have done something, she said to me while she wept. But I was so afraid. Repentance is not an easy thing. It's hard and costly. It's a fearful thing to face our own sin our failure, and to turn from them, especially if we aren't talking about respectable faults, but about the deeper patterns of brokenness that keep us enslaved. It shames me to realize that, like my father, I tend to be a controlling person. I don't know how, I don't know most of you, and so I don't know how most of you would do certain things, but my gut reaction is to believe that my way of doing it would be better than yours, even if I don't know. So if we're working together, I find subtle ways to sort of get you to do it the better way. Isn't that pathetic? It's not something I desire. It's a tendency that's second nature. And it simply appears because, well, it's the way I seem to be. And so I have to repent of those deeper things, those harder things. And pray the Spirit of God would discipline me to develop new habits of the heart. And as a grandfather, I'm still praying that and trusting that it will occur. A day or two before Mom died, several of us were with her at her bedside. She was asleep, deeply asleep, sedated to ease her discomfort. One of our closest friends here, Anita Gorder, took mom's face in her hand and said gently, Marjorie, I love you. Mom opened her eyes, looked at Anita, and said, I love you too. Those were the last words my mother said before she died. And though this is pure speculation, because I don't know, I suspect they were also the first words my mother said when she met her Savior on the other side. Let's pray. Father, repentance is a difficult thing. 
and I, for one, always try to find ways to keep from having to engage in it. Soften our hearts and help us to repent because it is through repentance that we find life and forgiveness and your very presence. And we ask this in the strong name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen.